Well, good morning. I hope you are all doing well this morning. I am excited because we are entering into a portion of Scripture that is absolutely one of my favorites in all of the Word of God with one of my favorite women, and I am so excited I get to teach on her. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Um, we are moving into John chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' response to two sisters, sisters that are very much assured that Jesus loves them. They are close friends of Christ. They have seen him heal other people. So when their brother becomes ill, they knew immediately, we'll send for Christ. He will come. He'll heal Lazarus, and all our problems will be solved, right? But that's not exactly what God did, is it? And we know as we look at this account in the Word of God, once again we're reminded that His ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are much higher, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are His ways higher than ours and His thoughts than our thoughts. But we can see as we look at the lives of these two women in particular that Christ is trustworthy, that He's faithful, that He's good. That a delay in an answer does not mean he doesn't know, is not aware, or that he doesn't care. He is always moving, but he moves on his timetable according to the will of the Father. So Lazarus becomes sick, and we see in chapter 11, it was, he's explaining that it was Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And he says, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, he makes mention of this before we read it. This is recorded in John chapter 12. So as John is writing this gospel many years after the other three synoptic gospels had been written, what Mary had done would have been well known. And so he just makes reference to the fact it's that same Mary, the one that anointed Jesus, an account they would have all been very much aware of. So the sisters send word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, do they doubt the love of the Lord? No. So they send for Christ because they know he loves Lazarus and they expect him to come. But in verse 4, Jesus says when he hears this, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then it goes on to tell us, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But what do we know? Because we've studied this this week. He delays, does he not? And how long has Lazarus been dead and in the grave by the time Jesus arrives in Bethany? Four days, right? So let's pick back up um, in, chap in verse 20. And we know that the disciples realize if he goes back that close to Jerusalem, just just under two miles outside of Jerusalem, that he's risking his life. And so they're all going prepared that they all may face death. But verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now we're going to hear Mary say the exact same thing, are we not? So I have to wonder if that was not something they'd been saying to each other over and over after the death of their brother and now his burial. And they've got all these mourners who've come from Jerusalem to mourn with them. But she said, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So this is a woman of faith. She understands who Christ is. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am. I am claiming to be God. I am the resurrection and the life. 
And he says, he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Jesus spoke truth to her, a claim to be God, and she believed. And when she had said this, she went away and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, if you've studied these two sisters, you know that the first time we see them in scriptures in Luke chapter 10. And it's when Jesus comes into Bethany and they're preparing a meal for him and his disciples. And Martha gets busy in the kitchen and Mary never makes it in there, right? <laughs> because she ends up seated <clears throat> at the feet of Jesus and she's listening to him teach. And he allows her to stay there as he's teaching the disciples to sit among the men as he taught. And Martha gets upset. And the more she thinks about it, the more angry she becomes. And so she comes in and she confronts the Lord, does she not? Lord, do you not see? Do you not care? My sister has left me alone to do all of this work by myself, and I so see myself in her <laughs> at times. Lord, do you not see? Do you not, do you not see how hard I'm working? You know, tell her to come and help me. She starts telling the Lord what to do instead of submitting to him and listening to his voice and understanding that he was preparing and serving a spiritual meal that was much more important than the physical meal she was so distracted by. And what does Jesus tell her? Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But there's only one thing that's really important. And, and Mary has chosen that one thing, and that is to sit at the feet of Christ, to listen to his voice, to be with him. That is the most important thing. And what he teaches us when we're sitting at his feet, when we're listening to his voice, once we get it, those revelations, those light bulb moments that God gives us through his Holy Spirit, no one will be able to take away from us. Becomes, they become a part of who we are. And I want to tell you right now, our world is worried and distracted about a lot of things. And may I just tell you, the coronavirus is just another virus like the flu, okay? So do not panic. Do not stockpile. Do you understand that people cannot get the necessities of life because people are stockpiling? That is not what Christians do. That is not what Christians do. Yes. If you have something somebody else needs, you share it with them at the point that they need it. More people have died of the flu this year than of the coronavirus. Now, does that mean that we don't be cautious? No. Wash your hands. That's the most important thing you can do. And do the 22nd thing. Soap and water is the absolute best thing you can do. Try not to touch your face. Do the basic things they tell you to do when you're trying to prevent yourself from getting the flu, which you do every single year. What is now flu type A was the H1N1, the one that killed a lot of people when it first came around and whenever that was, 2010, 2011. Now we're actually vaccinated for it, okay? We do not panic. Why? Because we know the sovereign one who is in control, the one who knows me, the one who has numbered my days. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to be reckless, but I am not going to live like the rest of the world. We are not giving an accurate testimony of Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life, when we act like everybody else, as though we don't even know him, as though we don't have the power of the resurrected Christ living within us. So keep choosing Christ. Keep choosing to trust him. And and years ago, when I was studying these two women, I made a column, and I mentioned it to you in your study this week, with Martha at the top of one and Mary at the top of the other. And I saw all three times that we see these women in Scripture, and I wrote down everything I saw about them. And what I recognize in Mary is every time we see her, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she also does not move until Christ calls her. 
I love that. She heard, just like Martha did, that Jesus was coming into town, that he was coming into their village. Martha jumps up, runs out there to greet him, and Mary stays in the house. But the moment Christ calls for her, what does she do? She gets up quickly, and she goes out, and she meets him, and Jesus is still where he met Martha. And what is Mary going to say to him? It says, verse 30, now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, the fact that they had a lot of Jewish mourners who had come in from Jerusalem to mourn with them indicates they were a very prominent family, because typically you paid mourners. Is that not strange? And if you were not a very wealthy family, you may only have one mourner. But the fact that they had many mourners shows they were a prominent family. And so they think she's going back to the tomb to mourn, and they get up to follow her. So they follow her out to see Jesus. Verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She said exactly what Martha said. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now this word deeply moved is also used again in verse 38 when they come to the tomb and he's deeply moved within. Now that is an inaccurate translation in that it really doesn't convey the depth of emotion that Christ was expressing and experiencing. In fact, um, some of the, well, um, the ESV Study Bible says to feel deeply and strongly Jesus was moved with profound sorrow intermixed with anger at the evil of death. G. Campbell Morgan said he was moved with indignation. He was angry, and being angry, he troubled himself. Jesus wept. He stood in the presence of death. Death was the outcome of sin. All the wrath of God surged through him in the presence of the whole of human misery, resulting from human sin and issuing in death and the breaking of hearts. In fact, I listened to a message by Tim Keller this past week on the two grieving sisters, and he said it is lexegetically inexcusable <laughs> that they have translated it like this. He said it literally means to bellow with anger. So what is Jesus doing? In his response to Martha, we're seeing him respond to her with basically a theological response. He's giving her truth. And do you understand that sometimes when people are grieving, they need to hear the truth, the reassurance of the word of God. But sometimes when people are grieving, they need your presence. They need you to feel with them. They need you to weep with them and sometimes not even say a word. Jesus is giving us the truth the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. He's also showing us that he is divine. He's expressing his deity. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he's showing us with Mary that he is human. 100% God, 100% man at the same time. And we're seeing the God-man respond in truth and the God-man respond in his humanity, feeling deeply, deep anger and sorrow over death. Now, he's not upset with Mary and Martha. He's not even upset with himself over death because why do we suffer death? It's our fault. It's because we have sinned that we experience death, that there is pain and separation. It is our rebellion. And he is angry at death and the sorrow and the pain that it causes mankind. At the same time, knowing to destroy death, he would have to die. Knowing what that meant for him, that literally to raise Lazarus from the dead would be signing his own death warrant. 
They were already plotting to kill him. The religious leaders were already watching him. And now this would be basically the nail in the coffin when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But he knew his purpose in coming to the earth was to die. And Christ was headed. He had set his face like flint toward the cross. You know, all of us will experience sorrow and suffering at some point in this broken, wounded planet. Elizabeth Elliot is one of my favorite authors. And Elizabeth understood and experienced suffering in her life on this earth. She's now with the Lord, but you may remember Elizabeth Elliot was married to Jim Elliot, one of the five missionaries that were speared to death by the Alka Indians. And in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, she says, and begins to explain a little bit what it was like for her to have her husband of 18 months speared to death. And how the Lord met her in the midst of that. And just two short years later, she and their infant daughter would move back down to Ecuador and actually live among the people who killed her husband. She would work among them, share the gospel with them, and help translate the Bible into their language. Some 16 years after this, she would remarry a man who was a theologian who would die three and a half years later of cancer. So she understands suffering. And in her book, she says, I've come to see that it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. And if we'll trust him for it, we can move through to the unshakable assurance that he's in charge. He has a loving purpose. And he can transform something terrible into something wonderful. Suffering is never for nothing. God knows and God cares. And he feels. And he is aware of every tear that has ever made its way down your cheek. He has captured every one of them. And one day, he will wipe them all away. Because he is the resurrection and the life. It's who he is. And because of that, we can trust him. Well, raising Lazarus was the seventh sign. And he did know that by raising him from the dead, he was going to be signing his death warrant. Let's pick back up in verse 25. Or actually, let's go back up to verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, and always Martha and always in charge, said, Lord, by this time, there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. He's going to be embarrassed. His body's decomposing. This is not going to be good. You don't want to remove that stone. And yet, what does Jesus say to her? Did I not say to you that if you believe, there's that word again, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, which indicates he's already prayed about this. He already knew the will of the Father. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus, which Jesus had done. What we see here are the only two possibilities of a response to Christ. We either believe or we don't believe. 
It's either belief or unbelief. Those are the only two responses to Christ. And we see that there were those who believed, but then there were those who did not believe. And in fact, um, Herschel Hobbes said, instead of falling at his feet in faith, they hot-footed it to tell his enemies. Strange indeed are the ways of some who stand in the presence of the power of God and yet turn away from it to walk in the power of Satan. It shows you those who were there in the very presence of the resurrection and the life, who saw him literally call forth a man who had been in the tomb for four days, and he came back to life and came tottering out completely bound in those grave clothes. And what does Jesus say? Let him loose, unwrap him, let him go. That's exactly what happens to us when we're born again. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, unable to know God, unable to experience the resurrection and the life. But when Christ calls us by name and saves us, he takes the trappings of the flesh off of us so that we can be set free to truly experience life now, abundant and everlasting and forever in his presence. And then as we move into John chapter 12, the last of 11, there are plotting to kill him. The Jews are talking about it. The Sanhedrin's called a meeting. Caiaphas prophesies, not even realizing what he's saying, um, that one must die for the nation. And John says later they understood. He didn't realize what he was saying, but he was prophesying, being the high priest. God spoke through him that there would be one who would die, not just for the nation, but for the nations. And as we move into chapter 12, it's six days before the Passover, and they come back into Bethany. He's been out away. He comes back into Bethany because now he knows his time has come. He's headed for the cross. And in Bethany, they prepare a meal for him. And Martha is serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And we know from the account in Mark that she also anointed his head. This pure nard was worth a year's wages. It was an extravagant gift. She probably broke the neck of the flask and poured it on his head. And you know how they reclined at table. They would be leaning on cushions and his feet would have been out behind him, leaning on one arm as they ate at the table. And so it would have been very easy for her to anoint his head and then to come down and anoint his feet. And she took her hair down, which only an immoral woman would have done in public. But she was using it to wipe his feet as she poured the perfume over him. And there were those who became indignant about this waste. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why has this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Extravagant worship. Have you ever worshipped the Lord like that? Have you ever experienced his presence in such a manifest way that you were almost overwhelmed by him? 
by his presence. That's what Mary is experiencing. Epi Meyer said Martha did not realize that her sister was being led to apprehend truths of which she had no idea. And that probably she was the only one in the world who had really entered into the heart of the Lord's teaching about his approaching death. The busy housewife little dreamt that her younger sister would presently perform a deed of rare and deep significance, which should refresh that beloved heart in the agonies of crucifixion, even as it left a fragrance on the sacred body of which all the coarse handling of the next few days could not deprive it. You read that beautiful poem this week in our study by Ken Geyer about Mary and her extravagant worship. And that's the thing I saw when I was studying these women so many years ago. Mary got it. All the disciples had heard he was headed to the cross. He'd been telling them over and over that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must die. A death of crucifixion in order to draw everyone unto himself. And yet nobody wanted to believe it. Why? They had a preconceived idea that the Messiah would be a political king who would free them from Roman oppression. So they were ready and willing for him to make his stand, to be the conquering king that they were looking for. But Jesus didn't come the first time <clears throat> as a conquering king. He came instead as a savior. He came instead to lay his life down. And Mary got it. How did she get it? Because she had been sitting at his feet. Because when her brother died, <coughs> she said the exact same thing her sister did, but her posture was completely different. She was at his feet, in essence saying what Christ would say in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's what her posture was saying. Lord, your will, I don't understand, but I bow before you. And I believe it was the anger at death, but it was also the movement of the heart of Christ over this woman whose protection was now gone, whose provision was gone, because she couldn't even own property in the day in which she lived. She lived with her brother. He would have been her protector and provider, and that was gone now. And yet she was willing to trust Christ even when she did not understand. And I believe that is also the reason that Jesus was so deeply moved and he wept. He wept. And I can remember when that hit me. Lord, you revealed to her the secret things because she trusted you even when she didn't understand. She submitted to you even when she had no idea how you would move on her behalf or how you would provide for her. She trusted you even when she could not see, and it moved the heart of God. I want to be so submitted to the will of the Father that I can have access to the heart of God, that his heart will be moved because I have such great faith. And because my faith is in him and submitted to him, that he will then reveal to me the true riches, which are spiritual in nature. And that's what he had done for Mary. And because he had revealed it to her and she had gotten it, he is headed to the cross. He's close. She did the most extravagant thing she knew to do. Pure nard, perfume, worth a year's wages. Can you even imagine that in today's terms? It was a gift. She was more than willing to give because of her great love for the Lord and to encourage him on the path that was marked for him by the Father. One he willingly walked down, where he would willingly lay down his life. You know, worship reveals our heart, does it not? What did Mary say? 
what can I do for Jesus? And what did Judas say? What can Jesus do for me? We will find ourselves there as well. When we hold back and don't want to give, don't want to serve, what are we saying? Jesus, what are you going to do for me? Show me first what you're going to do for me, and then I'll decide if I'm going to obey your word. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to those who follow him half-heartedly, but he promises to reveal himself to those who seek him with their whole heart. So after this, he goes into Jerusalem, and we have the triumphal entry. And he's going to ride in on a donkey because he's coming this time as a king of peace. He's coming to make peace with God for those for whom he will die, that he will lay his life down. We do know he's coming a second time. And he'll be on that white stallion. It's recorded for us in Revelation 19. And he is coming then as the conquering king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. But this time, amen, prior to his crucifixion, he's riding in proclaiming peace. Saying, I am the one who's coming to bring peace for all mankind who will believe. They may have peace with God. And the people cry out Hosanna and they get palm branches. And we know that these same ones crying Hosanna in just a few days will be crying crucify. Their hearts were fickle. They weren't really worshiping him. They were looking for relief. They were looking for deliverance. And Jesus is going to foretell his death. Some Greeks come seeking to know him and to know what's going on. And in verse 27, Jesus said, My soul's been troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons and daughters of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I healed them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. He saw the glory of Christ. We know in Isaiah 6, he saw the glory of the Lord. And he knew that Christ the Messiah was coming. And he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. 
He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Jesus Christ is the expression of God the Father. He was sent to reveal the Father to us. He said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. You have your eyes opened the moment you come to Jesus Christ. He opens your eyes to see with spirit eyes and to hear with spirit ears. And if we will consecrate ourselves, commit ourselves to him and immerse ourselves in his word, he will continue to reveal himself and continue to grant us his truth. He says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. In fact, he's not judging. His word is judging us. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. When Christ was at the tomb and he was grieved, in fact, bellowed with rage, as Tim Keller said, he was angry at death, angry at sin, angry at the evil one and all that it has done to us, those who've been created in the image of God. But if Christ had come with a sword in his hand to destroy evil, none of us would have survived. Because we are evil. We are born with a sin nature. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. So to come and destroy evil with the sword would have meant he would have destroyed us. But instead he came to bear our evil. He came to die on a cross so that our evil and all of their evil, every sin that's ever been committed could be put on his body, the light of the world. That's why that day at noon it was dark like midnight because the light of the world was concealed by the sin of the world. And everything was dark. But praise Jesus that the moment he gave up his spirit and the earth split and the veil tore from top to bottom, he forever opened the way for us to have access to the Father because of his sacrifice in our place. That's why Jesus was willing to come, to lay down his life, that we might not be destroyed, but we might be purchased, forgiven, cleansed, made whole in Christ, covered by his blood so we would not experience the second death, but instead be given the deposit of his spirit who seals us for the day of redemption, the day we will see him face to face. You know, we know as we've been looking through the book of John that there are themes in his word. Three of the words that we see over and over are light and love and life. The light without the love would terrify me and breed despair. The love without the light would be powerless to reach my soul. But the light and the love together generate life. A life which as I enter into union with Christ by faith becomes a present possession, eternal and death-defying because it is the very life of God. Jesus lived in absolute and utter obedience to the Father. And because he lives within us, we now have been given the power of God through his spirit to live in utter obedience to him as well. But it is only as we die to the flesh, our old way of life, 
take up our cross daily, denying ourselves and follow him, that we're able to experience the abundant life Christ came to purchase for us. So it is his light and his love that come together, light exposing our sin, love granting us grace and forgiveness. As they come together, we experience life that only comes in Christ Jesus. And that means we have hope, That means we can trust him regardless of what's going on in our life or the world around us. It means that the culture is not going to impact how we live and what we believe. Instead, we are going to be salt and light in a decaying, broken, dark world because we choose to base our life on the truth of God's word and we will not compromise it for any reason because we know the one who gave his life. We know the one who loved us so much that he willingly laid down his life for us and called us friend. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. Father, we bless you. We thank you. Lord, I I just have no words (laughs) to fully express our love and gratitude to you. Father, it's so hard for us to even begin to comprehend That the one who spoke all that we know into existence would put on flesh and come into the world that he created and experience death, hell, and the grave so that we don't have to. So that we will never die and be separated from you. Father, we thank you. We bless you. We give you all praise and glory and honor, and we ask you to help us live with a kingdom vantage point. Father, not to be caught up in fear and hysteria like the world around us who have no hope, but we know you, the God of all creation, the God who loves us, the God who sees, the God who cares, who will never leave us nor forsake us, and we choose to trust you and to stand firm upon your promises. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, ladies.